This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at Bycheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative Bycheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the Bycheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The Bycheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the Bycheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting Bycheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. And in this exciting episode, we have Lindsay Lee. Lindsay is a venture capitalist, and we talked to him about his background and all the things that he has done from a representation standpoint and also in business. Without further ado, let's jump right into this excellent episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have Lindsay Lee, founder and managing member of Authentic Ventures. Lindsay has 20 years of experience as an investor in Silicon Valley. He's built and managed early stage portfolios for his firm and others. Lindsay, we originally met at the DevColor conference back in 2019, and I knew at some point we'd have you on the podcast. I'm glad we finally did it and the day is here. But most importantly, welcome to the show. Happy New Year, guys. Really excited to be here and so grateful for having me on the show today. Happy New Year to you. Man, it was incredible. We met you at the DevColor event. I still remember it like it was yesterday, but it took so long for us to get you on the podcast. For the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure, happy to. And DevColor is an organization I care deeply about. For those of you that that don't know anything about DevColor, it's an organization that's focused on Black software engineers and really helping them in, in their journey as they become leaders in their organization. And I've been involved for several years and been on the board there and really excited that we had a chance to meet at the conference uh, a couple of years ago. So to tell you a little bit about Authentic Ventures, we are an early stage venture capital firm. We invest in seed and early stage companies. I've been a tech investor for most of the last 20 years before starting my firm, worked at a family office and and built uh, what's become a very successful seed and early stage portfolio there. Have been investing under the authentic umbrella since 2016. And a real big part of how we think about the world and, and venture, it's a very network driven business. And as I thought a little bit about what it would mean to do my own thing in the industry. I really looked at the, the status quo and I felt venture, it works really well for some. And the problem with using networks in the way that they're used in Silicon Valley is I think it can really exclude lots of incredible, talented people for reasons that don't have anything to do with merit. 
And I just thought, what if you built a different kind of network, one that over-indexed to women and people of color? You could really use that in a different way to find early stage founders, who many of whom are going to be diverse. Two-thirds of the investments we've made have been in companies where at least one of the founders is a woman or person of color, which we've been very proud of. But we think there's a lot of work to do. We think there's a lot of opportunity. And it really starts by making sure that we're engaged with all of the incredible high potential people out there, like yourselves, Ron and Chris. I think you're exhibit A of just people who we think of as being important members of our extended community who are doing great things, not only in their day job, but really trying to, to change the dynamic and see that more voices are heard. We care deeply about seeing more people who look like us get the benefit of the doubt. And that's a little bit about who we are and what we do. It's great to hear what you're doing. And also thank you for the compliment of shouting out Chris and I. We did open our own business, but it happened to be a podcast, not yet a startup. But <laughs> <laughs> but one of the great things I think about what you're doing is the bringing in the people of color and women and giving them the same opportunity that they might have not gotten otherwise. And I think when you start down this type of venture, there's a bit of exploration that leads to you starting your, your firm. What was the exploration like and what were the eye-opening moments that made you want to do this in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think I've always been someone who's, I guess, been a real believer in the underdog. I feel so blessed for all the opportunities that, that I've had. I'm the child of uh, immigrant parents. My family's from the West Indies. Neither of my parents had a chance to graduate from high school, much less college. So feel so blessed. I've had an incredible education and so have my two sisters. But when I think about my career and life, there's so many people that I've come across who I, I just feel like they've gotten where they are, not because the deck was stacked in their favor in any way, but it was just about sort of persistence, a lot of hard work, and some luck for sure. And as I thought about the industry that we're in and the complexion of that industry, I really felt like there were some real structural issues or system design problems. And I touched a little bit on this, but the venture business is very small as a percentage of overall assets in the world of alternative investments. It's a pretty small industry. It's about $50 billion in the US. And if you look at the concentration of those assets, they're managed by a relatively small number of venture firms. And if you peel the onion back a little further and you look at the composition of these firms, I'd say overwhelmingly they are filled with partners who are white men, which doesn't make them bad. In fact, many of them are good friends of mine and, and there are lots of good people in this business for sure. But it doesn't change the fact that in a business where so much of what determines whether or not people get a chance is based on who you know and specifically knowing a GP or general partner inside of a venture firm, if people's networks look like they do, folks like us don't really have much of a chance, right? Because we are so poorly represented in these firms, not only at the GP level, but frankly, even at junior levels. Venture firms tend to be flat. 
They just recently started adding junior ranks. I'd say that's become more common in the last maybe five or six years. And it's really only been in the last two or three that even women have some representation, albeit very small, in the industry. And so as I stepped back and I thought about, hey, if people like me don't start firms and we're not intentional in some way and really making sure that we're seeing everyone who's capable and working on interesting ideas that can create a lot of value. If there aren't folks like me doing it, the rate of change in this industry is going to be very slow. Glacial, in fact. I think we will wake up 10 or 15 years from now and it won't look very different than the way that it looks today. And as I think about just how important it is that we create more wealth in our community. That starts with making sure that, again, from a liquidity and capital perspective, there are more investors that are open to founders, regardless of their race or gender. And so we looked at the overall opportunity and really saw it as that. You can always look at a challenge and say, glass is half empty, or you can look at it and say, no, maybe it's half full. And maybe there's an opportunity to really take a different approach. And if we're successful, we not only generate great returns for our partners, which is obviously really important, but we also help teams, really diverse teams and teams that are led by women achieve outcomes that that maybe without our involvement wouldn't have been possible. And that excites us because we really think that more diverse teams are more likely to outperform. They're also more likely to build their teams and boards differently. And that just expands the footprint of who gets to participate in success. And that's a powerful motivator for me. That's incredible. Such a powerful motivator for sure. And one thing that motivates me, and I think it motivates other people as well, is when it's hard to see yourself as something without seeing an example, whether it's from cultural perspective or socioeconomic or even racial, it's hard for you to to say, I'm going to do that thing if you don't see someone else do it. So like Ron and I, we didn't have a lot of folks that we could look up to or, or were in the limelight from our industry. And so we almost felt like we had to create that space for ourselves. Let us know a little bit about that journey to venture capitalism. What was it like at the beginning? What motivated you to get into that? And tell us a little bit the the journey of exploring what that world looks like. So I'd say I started out my career in technology as a founder and I started a company right out of grad school. It failed. I learned a lot from that failure. I think two things. One, timing is really important. You know, I started a company in 1999, I think it was, and trying to raise money in early 2001, even if you were making good progress is really hard. But you only have so much control over timing. I would say the other thing that I think really caused me to introspect and really move to the investing side of things was just this knowledge about myself and how I wanted to intersect with the industry. I had a law degree and I thought maybe I could be a lawyer, do sort of transactional work. And I thought about that. I said, that's a little bit like being a referee. You're drawing the lines on the field and calling fouls. If you think about entrepreneurship as a sport, there's no question that the people that are having the most fun are the entrepreneurs. The highs are super high and the lows are pretty low. 
they're the ones that are running up and down the field and scoring goals. Whereas being an investor, I think really allows you to be a coach and you're playing a bunch of different games at once. You've got a stake in the outcome, but you're one step removed. And I really, I think, decided for myself in the early 2000s that that was the path that I wanted to go on. As far as investing specifically in early stage companies, I've been doing that mostly over the last 10 years, nine years at this point. And I had been investing initially in an asset management company where I was actually investing in funds, then in a fund that was investing mostly in publicly traded technology companies, small and mid cap, some growth stage venture. And then I joined a family office and built and managed a portfolio there. That was really kind of a turning point for me. And then I I got into the point where I looked at the public markets and just, again, I, I think a lot about just system design and what the incentives look like. And it really felt to me like more and more of what was happening in a public context wasn't really investing. You need to be right in very short time frames. Typically, as a growth investor, you're looking at things unfold, not even over quarters, but over years. And I really wanted to focus more on developing deep relationships with a handful of founders and really taking the long view, which I just thought suited my personality even more. And that was a, a very successful endeavor at, a, at an investment level. Learned a lot about how important it is to be right about the people you're in business with. And decided to start my own thing with an eye towards doing something different. I knew that I didn't want to just hang a shingle and say, I'm another seed stage fund. There are a lot of small seed stage managers out there, not many of whom look like us, but still I didn't feel like doing something that was totally undifferentiated would be very fulfilling. I knew it was going to be tough. And uh, there's a, a brother named Damian Dwin at Brightwood. I remember him telling me, it's going to cost twice as much and take twice as long to get your business off the ground. And I remember thinking at the time, ah, oh, yeah, maybe, but... I'm sure it's going to be hard, but I feel like I've got some pretty decent relationships and good investment record, other things. Venture businesses and are, are really hard to start. But I think it teaches you something about what it's like to be an entrepreneur because you're a fund entrepreneur and you got to stare down a lot of uncertainty. You got to talk to a lot of investors. You hear a lot of no's. It's a real grind. But Again, I think if you're doing what you love, you sort of manage to fight through it. And here we are, and we're investing out of our second fund. I love the parallel between coaching and being an investor, because when you think about it, if you're investing in a startup or you're a startup founder, your investor is really going to be like your advisor. They might make introductions for you. They might link you up with potential customers and help you grow your business. Like you were saying, you might have given some startup founders the opportunity to grow their business in such a way that they might have not been able to do without you and the help of your firm. But before all of this happened, there must have been a lot of things you had to learn. Like coaches have all of these auxiliary skills. They have understanding of the game. They, they understand the rules of the game, like a referee. How did you immerse yourself in this environment, in the venture capital world? What was the immersion like for you? And what were some of the successes and things that you learned along the way when you were getting started? 
Man, I still feel like I am learning every day. One of the things I love about being an investor is I don't think it's possible to know everything there is to know about it. If you just think about what it takes to be really good, you're trying to develop competence in things that are constantly changing. So the people that you invest in, they're growing and developing as human beings. They're building organizations and those teams are changing and that's changing the culture. The markets that they're investing in are going through the state of dynamic change. And obviously the product itself, whatever that is, is constantly evolving. I think if you're looking for something that's really challenging, investing is super challenging. You're intersecting with people, products, markets at particular points in time. But it really keeps you humble because if there's one thing I've learned over time, it's that 70 to 80% at least of your initial investment hypothesis is going to be wrong. (laughs) I don't care how smart you are. You have a view on a product and a market and how a company is positioned. You think the following things are going to play out over the next N number of years. It just rarely happens according to plan for all the reasons that I mentioned. There's so many things you can't anticipate. The single thing you've got to get right is betting on the right people. The best investments are in A-plus people. And I think that those instincts are constantly being refined. And they're also very situational to some extent. I think there's some generalizable character traits that I look for in people. Probably top of the list is people that are highly self-aware. Yeah, it's amazing how much that solves for. If I think about my best investments and my worst investments, inevitably the worst ones, for the most part, have a common characteristic in that I, I just got some aspect of the people side of things wrong and inevitably those people weren't as self-aware as I thought they were going to be. And if anything, over time, I just tend to emphasize that more and more, really trying to get a bead on the people side of things. It doesn't mean that we don't spend a lot of time on product and market, but getting back to the network, right? It's one reason why networks are used as much as they are in our industry is because that people part of the equation in early stage companies is so important. Anyways, that's a little bit about how I come at what I do, which is trying to find great teams and great companies to invest in. I'd say it's been cumulative and and I'm still learning. I hope I'm getting better at doing what I do, but we'll see. Our business is also one with very long feedback loops. So you invest in a company, it takes six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 years to generate an exit. And you're wise to be humble (laughs) along the way and not have an inflated view of just how good you are. So we're still learning. I love that you mentioned people and teams, because when you think of immersion, there's that theory that you are the sum of your five closest friends, but it's probably compounded in venture capitalism. So you surround yourself with good teams, good leaders, good founders, good people in general, good advisors. How does that play a role in your immersion into this VC space? And then where does representation come in? I do feel like the problem we're trying to solve is a complex one. And what creates success in companies and entrepreneurial endeavors 
is more than just a great idea. It's frankly even more than usually just a team, although the team's really important. It's a confluence of those things and then also having the right support system around the company. I think there are a lot of founders who day one, they've just got an amazing support system around them. Maybe they came from a family of technologists. Maybe they came out of a successful growth company and they just have lots of pre-existing relationships that really help them refine the idea, think more critically about how they build the team and just put all those different building blocks in place. And we try to be really mindful of that in terms of how we're building our system and approaching the opportunity. We hired a community manager, a gentleman named Jesse Klein, who is really involved in how do we think about managing all these relationships that we have with engineers and product managers and designers and just incredible people at top growth companies and really bring those relationships to bear to help our companies win. Because ultimately we know it really is going to take a village. I think the good news is because our network is very diverse, our starting point's a little different. The energy that we get from folks in our network to help and advise and coach our companies is really high. And that's not about just the economic benefit that might accrue to us or them. It's beyond that. I think people want to see other people who look like them succeed. And we think that's really powerful. And it's a real big part of how we think about our internal and external culture that we're trying to create. It's a mindset. We can all succeed together, but let's bring to bear all of our skills and relationships to help each other win. I love that sentiment. That's incredible. One thing that I think about from, I think, any industry really is the aspect of studying and having vision. And I think you would have to study quite extensively, especially when you're looking to place bets on people, place bets on startups. Where does studying and data come into your role as a VC? And then how do you use that to, to make your best guesses and best bets? Yeah, there is an enormous amount of study or preparation, I think, that's done before we make an investment. And in some ways, you're drawing on cumulative experiences across earlier investments that you've made, good ones and and bad ones. And you're showing up in that moment. And I think when you intersect with that team and there's an opportunity to make an investment, it's the combination of those things. We tend not to be formulaic in the way that we approach investments because every investment is unique. The team's unique, the product's unique, the market that they're going after has got nuances. Having said that, we think of ourselves as being really rigorous investors, and we spend a lot of time trying to get a beat on the people, and that tends to happen both through interaction with them, interaction with references that they provide, and then we do off-reference checking on people too. And that's, again, the value of, of having a community. Many of our investment opportunities come from people that are in our network. And so it means a lot when someone you've got a lot of respect for says, hey, this person, she is incredible as a human being, as an engineer, as an entrepreneur. I think the world of them, amazing starting point. And we spend a lot of time on that. Depending on the stage of the company, we do different kinds of diligence on the product 
sometimes things are still in an inchoate stage. So maybe the product isn't fully built out, but there are a handful of core features that exist, maybe a pilot product that's in the hands of customers. But then as companies mature, I mean, we invest in mostly in seed, although we do a little bit of Series A and Series B. As companies mature and there's more quantitative data to analyze, both operational data as it relates to maybe specific KPIs that are focused on the product engagement, obviously financial data like revenue and growth. We're growth investors. We prioritize growth very highly. We like to invest in things that have some momentum and are off to a a fast start when we can and have the ability to return the whole fund. It keeps us out of things that where we think even if the company's successful, the economic opportunity here is modest. We're really trying to get, before we invest, just a really clear sense of hey, what planks are we walking off? There's no free lunch in investing. Every investment has risks. We just try to be as clear-eyed as possible about what those risks are. What are the things that we absolutely have to get for this investment to be a success? And, you know, is there some margin of error here so that we don't run out of time (laughs) in the meantime? Because that's what ultimately kills a lot of investments is the company's undercapitalized, doesn't perform the plan, and then you run out of time. So it sounds like it's the team, but also there's these data points that can help you determine whether something is a good investment or if it's actually turned into something fruitful. In my mind, with all of the data and studying that data, I think to myself, I would probably get paralysis by analysis. I might be a little fatigued by just looking at all the data, studying it over and over again, because it is a monetary investment. At what point do you begin and end like the research phase? How do you know you've collected enough information? What makes you confident enough to make that bet? And how does that kind of decision empower these underrepresented groups that you're working with? Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. In some ways, there's a slightly different response for every investment that we make. But I would say high level, we tend to hold ourselves to a standard, which is we're going to ask different questions based on where the company is in its evolution as it relates to the team and as it relates to commercial traction. It's just not reasonable to ask the same questions of a seed company as it is a series B. There's less quantitative data to analyze. So again, I think generalizing, you're probably going to just be spending a lot more time on the founders, their backgrounds. Are these founders and their backgrounds particularly well-suited to the problem that they're trying to solve and why? And is this an investment where we really think we can use our network to at least get a good bead on the people and how the problem space that they're focused on is evolving, just so we have a good sense of the nuances. Or is that learning curve just going to be way too shallow for us to be able to know what planks we're walking off in a relevant time frame? And when that's true, we will typically say to a team, hey, We'd love to just stay in touch and develop a relationship, but we just don't feel like we're knowledgeable enough and likely to get there inside the window of your seed funding process. We love 
to develop relationships with founders outside of a specific funding event, because that really gives us a chance to learn about the people and the product in a less forced way. And that in turn can lead to, in some ways, very compressed funding cycles in that by the time they're at a point where, hey, we're willing to take some more money right now, we feel really well positioned and knowledgeable. We can step up. There's no learning curve for us or a much lower one. And we can get right to the heart of that individual investment because we've been collecting data along the way in terms of how we avoid paralysis by analysis. A lot of it really has to do with just trying to be really clear-eyed about what are the fundamental questions and things that we need to get answers to based on the specifics of this company and where they are in their evolution. Ryan, I think you also asked a question about representation, and I've forgotten that part of it. Yeah, I was uh, asking more so after you make the decision and you make the investment, what kind of impact does that have on the founder and uh, these underrepresented groups? Oh, yeah, that's really important to us. I would say that it probably depends. One of the things I've learned is that different founders need different things based on where they are in their life and the evolution of the company. We've made investments in many founders where we're an early believer in what they're doing and not a lot of other believers around. And it's helpful to get involved and really just try to help them as they catalyze interest from others. And then post-investment, our goal is to be the most knowledgeable person in the cap table. And being the most knowledgeable may or may not mean that we're the most active, but oftentimes there's a relationship there. Many of the investments that we make are in enterprise software companies, and we're firing up our network, trying to help them with early customer traction and finding those handful of entrepreneurial customers. We're talking to potential candidates that they're trying to recruit and trying to bring new candidates to the table and helping them with product direction, either directly or indirectly, sitting down and working with them on their product roadmaps and enlisting support from folks in our network who are subject matter experts in areas that are useful to the company. Our involvement tends to manifest in lots of different ways, but our standard is how can we make sure that we're just knocking ourselves out to be a resource to our companies? Post-investment, we really think of ourselves as investors who are trying to serve our founders. We're trying to win together, and that really excites us, and it excites our network and community because uh, of how diverse it is. I love you talked a bit about the impact that you have for your founders I'd like to take a moment just for you to reflect on where you came from, your journey, the tools you've had to sharpen, the studying you've had to do, and how does that translate to the impact that you ultimately want to have on society? I don't feel like I started out on on first base or second base. I came from a family of very modest means, a good chunk of my childhood raised by my mother, but had two loving parents, which I'm so grateful for, who worked really hard, but didn't have a lot of education or resources. And they cared a ton about education and they really prioritized that. And I think that's the thing that allows me to be in the position that I'm in today. I think pretty early in my 
career. I had this goal. I still remember when I applied to grad school talking about having a business at some point in the financial services industry that did something that helped people in our community in one way or another. I think it was ill-formed back then in terms of exactly what that would be, but it's amazing how things tend to come around. I just feel so incredibly blessed to have had the opportunities that I've had. I think the skills that I've learned, my first job out of college, I worked in an investment bank. And I really learned a lot about capital markets and and finance. And I think developed a lot of confidence just in my analytical abilities. I was a state university kid in an analyst class full of these Ivy League kids and kind of had a chip on my shoulder. I really felt like I had something to to prove and wanted to just do the best job that I could. And I think that baseline of skills has really served me well in my career. I'd say other sort of things that I've just developed and and learned along the way is having an opportunity to look at and understand public market companies all the way down to the seed stage and extrapolating a level up to the asset management business early in my career investing in funds, I just think has really given me a broader appreciation for just the questions and issues that arise in different pockets of the market, how to think about things like investment sentiment, really understanding or trying to be at least really thoughtful about what we talked about earlier. What are the critical things that we need to get right given where we are today? And then what are the questions that are going to be asked by the next rung of the capital structure and on and on? I I feel like that's been good training. I'd say the The most important lesson (laughs) I've learned really does get back to people and just how important that is, the good and the bad. The good in that I'm constantly humbled by some of the founders that I've gotten to know and just the tremendous success that they've had, their brilliance and their work ethic. It's just, it's a real pleasure. And those have been some great partnerships. And that's one of the most fulfilling things I think about being uh, an investor. I'd also say that I've learned that there's a lot of greed in our industry and people who behave in exploitative ways. And you can never learn everything there is to know about how to really be mindful of that. Because I think that Silicon Valley projects this image of everyone being kind of nice and kind to each other. And And there are, I think, some really good positive norms of conduct. But I also think that there's a lot of other kinds of behavior. And as I grow and develop, not just as an investor, but also as a human being, I think it's all about how can I lean into relationships with other people who just inspire me in one way or another. We really believe in this idea of just having relationships with people who share our values and are really authentic. One of the themes that I think is part of this conversation is team. And I've had quite a few great mentors, but two that really pop into my mind is when I was first getting started in cybersecurity, one of my mentors told me to find a study buddy, find someone that I can study with, that we can constantly grow off of and create something great, whether it's a career, a product, or just an idea. And another mentor of mine told me before starting a business, 
think and try to find a co-founder. They are going to help you succeed while you're sleeping. While they're sleeping, you can help them succeed. And I'm sure as a mentor, as a VC, you come with a wealth of nuggets. For anyone that's listening right now that's curious about becoming a startup founder or even looking into becoming a VC, what advice would you have for them and how should they begin? I would say as a startup founder, the things that you should be doing to prepare yourself. One, there's no substitute for excellence in something that you're passionate about or your current job even. Maybe if you're not that passionate about it, demonstrating excellence and having some foundation of skill. Maybe that's in coding, building a product. Maybe that's in being a great product manager or designer. But I think it's really easy to overlook all the things that we learn from just really applying ourselves in in one area or to a thing for a long enough period of time to really develop a sense of, of that thing and hopefully some expertise. Many of the best founders that I've backed over the years, I think, also show up with that plus knowledge of the industry or problem space that they're trying to, to solve or are trying to focus on. Not always, but often it's the case that they just have a very nuanced and sometimes even bold view about here's what the world's going to look like. And this is why this company can really do something that's meaningful as part of this change that no one has yet seen or really observed. I do think that there is there's a process of refinement that precedes the decision to make the leap and start a company. And sometimes what that looks like is you've built a network of people who can really help you challenge your views in constructive ways and just make sure you're thinking about all the things that are worth thinking about and that can be reasonably understood. At some point, you're still going to have to take that leap, right? You're not going to get there by writing a paper or a better business plan. Fundamentally, you still have to just develop that conviction that this is an idea that makes sense and that you're willing to apply the next n number of years of your life, giving this thing a go. I do think network plays a, a big part of that conviction building. And one thing I often mention to aspiring entrepreneurs is don't overlook that. You've got a great job at Netflix or Marketa or wherever, and you've got a bunch of peers that you interact with on a daily basis. You've got other people in the industry that you have an opportunity to engage with. Those are really important relationships because when you go to start your new thing, it's just good to have some people in your corner, some of whom may also have resources that they can bring to bear. And when there's nothing there, a lot of times it's just a bet on Chris. It's just a bet on Ron. I only need to know so much about the idea. I know Ron. I work with the guy shoulder to shoulder. He's my guy. You would be shocked at how much of that like very early capital comes from people like that. And so don't underestimate the importance of network. And I guess the last thing I'd say is I talked earlier about getting a fund off the ground and having the baseline assumption that it's going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. I think that's important too. get your money right. You got to be in a position where you've got some staying power because it could take a little longer than you expect to build and ship that first product or raise that first chunk of capital. And so if you can do things to give yourself a little bit of room 
and time to see it play out. And I know that's harder for many of us than it is others, right? Because many of us don't come from families that have trust funds and lots of money just sitting around. Oh, Junior's going to go start something new. Here's a half a million dollars to get you started. I didn't have anyone doing that for me. And we understand that there's just a different set of obstacles that we've got to overcome. But it doesn't mean that it isn't important to think about and just be grounded in the idea that it takes a long time to get something off the ground. So just be thoughtful about it. Cultivating excellence, finding that conviction, surrounding yourself with the right people, and then having that patience. If I could wrap all of what you just said into those four points, I think that's what would nail it. And we couldn't have said it better ourselves. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? Really a pleasure to be on with you both today. Thanks so much. In terms of staying in touch, we've got our website is www.authentic-ventures.com. We have an info at email address on the website. You can feel free to hit us there if you've got investment ideas or have an interest in being a part of our community. So really appreciate the great work that you're doing, Chris and Ron, trying to increase representation in different areas of of our lives and uh, happy to be a resource to you and your listenership. Our pleasure. It's always great to speak to you and catch up, Lindsay. We'll be sure to drop the email and also a link to your website in the show notes for the listeners to check out. Really appreciate the time and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.